Welcome to All Road 65 Max Radio, where the road ahead gets brighter as we journey towards truth, traveling through our dreams and an inspiration into a new reality. It's time, and your ticket is waiting. All Roads Lead 65 Max Radio with Pamela Henderson. Greetings. Thank you for joining me on BBS Radio, All Road 65 Max Radio. I am your host, Pamela L. Henderson. My focus is my mission statement to help create a quality of life through social growth, inspiring jewels to become leaders by establishing partnerships with corporations, nonprofits, donors, sponsors, volunteers, the community, and abroad. Please join me every other Tuesday at noon on BBS Radio, All Row 65 Max Radio. My special guest today is Mr. Anthony Moore who describes living in the shadow of two larger-than-life men in an age where divorced and blended families weren't the norm. Anthony's father, Gerald Moore, was a popular radio actor and on-screen villain in classic westerns who struggled to replicate his success on screen during the advent of television. Good-looking, fun-loving, and passionate, Gerald Moore was a man who lived large and loved large. Regaled young Anthony with stories of Hollywood parties and beautiful women and ultimately left Anthony and his mother for another woman. And in a time not unlike the present where political affiliations ran deep, Gerald was an enthusiastic Democrat he worked for Robert F. Kennedy's presidential campaign and was the ballroom of the Ambassador Hotel when RFK was shot. At last, I want to say thanks again for giving me this interview chance, Mr. Moore, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's an honor. <laughs> yes, <here>. sir. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to get right to it. I have some a bunch of questions, and I'm t absolutely intrigued. And again, thank you so much. So tell me, in your opinion, what does it really mean for children of divorced parents to live their lives every other weekend? It takes a lot of um, adjustment. Uh, at the time, it's not easy because you literally are bouncing from one culture to the other. I mean, it's almost impossible to say that both homes are going to be the same. And in my case, both homes were not the same. They were polar opposites, which led me to write my book every other weekend. But, uh, you know, when you, if you, you take to take the long view and look back, it actually can help you out uh, because it, it exposes you to more than one culture. I mean, when we grow up in a uh, with an intact family all the way through, you're in one household and that's what you're used to. And that really kind of sets you in your ways and uh, for the most part into adulthood. But with two households, you're getting used to two different, as I said, cultures, uh, ways of doing things, learning two different codes, two different patterns. And when you become an adult, that actually can be helpful. Uh, you know, I became a, a Superior Court judge and still sit part-time. I retired a couple of years ago after uh, two decades on the bench. But I'll tell you, uh, looking back, it certainly helped prepare me because on the court, you see people from everywhere. You know, I don't care, you know, different stripes, different religions, races, creeds, cultures, beliefs, 
economic backgrounds and having you know grown up with two different as i said uh environments it's kind of helps you try to appreciate where people are coming from so, so true. yeah i mean i'm not going to say i'm grateful for it but i could i could say now that i'm you know a lot older into into you know my dotage if you will yeah i can appreciate <laughs> having the two exposures but as a kid it's it's not fun i mean if somebody said would you do it again i'm sure my answer would be no Yes, I do agree because my parents divorced, uh, let me see, 17 years they were together and I was 12. Mm, And all I can remember is I rebelled. So here I am. I didn't quite understand because they never did discuss their issues. But what I just seen for myself I wanted it to be better and I just, my expectations of my parents, it wasn't any excuses. So I just start doing little things like smoking cigarettes with my oldest sister. And I was a little rebellious in school, mm-hmm. but I did manage to get that part together. Cause when I seen myself falling behind a little bit, I was like, Oh no, that's not going to happen to me. <laughs> Good for you. So I did get it together and everything. So that is so true. We, we, we kind of had a similar track, if you will. Uh, my my folks split when I was nine, which isn't okay. too far away from age 12. Uh, like you, mine did, didn't tell me why. They just said, sometimes people don't want to live together and we're not going to live together anymore. But nobody really sat me down and gave me the, the details until I was considerably older. And like you... Ooh. Uh, my behavior in school fell off. I it was great in the third grade when the, uh, my folks were together. I, I, I still had the report card and I was getting all A's. And then, yeah. And they had a, you know, citizenship and they had all sorts of categories under citizenship, deportment, enthusiasm, uh, behavior, you, you name it. They had it, at least 15 uh, subcategories and I was outstanding in all of them. Then we get wow. into the fourth grade you know, after the divorce, the divorce started I think they split in September. So the report card from the fourth grade didn't have me failing, but there were no A's there. And under deportment, it was down to satisfactory and almost unsatisfactory. I bounced back in the fifth grade. Uh, In fact, school became my center of the world. It was the one stable environment I had. And so I really threw myself into it and did well. Fortunately, it could have, you know, Pamela could have gone the other way. So I'm lucky. (laughs) <laughs> so true. What should parents keep in mind if they are planning to divorce, in your opinion? Uh, get the kid a good shrink. Really? Get the kid into therapy, even if the kid seems fine, even if you've got the most well developed, ostensibly well adjusted child, uh, the child is not. This is a shock. This is a body blow to somebody's psyche and well-being, to their sense of security. I would say retain a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a social worker. Retain somebody who's licensed and has expertise in this area and uh, expose the child to them and let them talk. When I was a kid, you you wouldn't do that. I mean, if somebody went to a psychologist back then, everybody thought you were crazy. Uh, that's not the case now. It's a resource we should take advantage of. So true. Now, is 
what do you think would be a difference? Sometimes I know that children have a hard time talking to strangers. Mm-hmm. Would it be possible for even a outsider such as someone that's close to the family that can come in and, and discuss some of their needs or their concerns? Sure. Do you think that's possible as well? Sure. Depending on who the person is. I mean, you know, we had some very close family friends uh, later on and had they been around when I was nine or 10, I'm sure I would have been delighted to talk with them. So I think that's a great idea. And, and if you've got someone like that out there and who's available uh, and you trust their judgment and their attitudes, take advantage of it. Yes. Yeah, that is so true. And that's one thing we do have to look at is making sure that their judgment and where they stand in their beliefs and everything can, you know, um, agree with yours when you're discussing with your children, because you don't want to end up interrupting and saying, no, no, no. And I've seen that happen before. Yeah. So that's the reason why I had asked that question. Yeah, it can happen. So you really have to be trusting. You don't want this person to suddenly start spouting some philosophy that you don't agree with or trying to convert yeah. them uh, to into a different religion or something like that. That happened to some people I know. Uh, they had relatives mm. who were very, very uh, fundamental in their religion, which was quite different from the parents' religion. And unknown to the parents, these people were trying to were brainwashing their two kids. So you have to be careful. You have to be careful. That is true. So growing up in Beverly Hills during the golden age of Hollywood. So you've been out there a long time, your father and your family. And event of television. Tell me about your experience growing up. Well, you know, it's kind of like if you're a goldfish in the bowl, you recognize that you're surrounded by water. You don't. It's just normal. Uh, You think, isn't this the way the rest of the world is? And so as a kid, you know, I was surrounded by lots of people in the entertainment industry, uh, not big stars. Um, My father was never an A-list celebrity. He wasn't a Kirk Douglas or a Marlon Brando, but he was he was well known. And he was certainly an A-lister on the radio. And so we had lots of friends in that area. And they came in. Now, I was too young to really get to know them or spend a lot of time with them, but they were there and I heard their jokes and I saw them around and, mm-hmm. you know, they had to have had an impact on my personality. And in fact, uh, I have no idea if this is true, but my mother swears it was true. Uh, she's no longer <laughs> around so I can ask her, but she said that other than people in the family, the first woman to hold me in her arms was Rita Hayworth. Uh, because my dad and Rita Hayworth danced together in the movie Gilda. Uh, they had a scene together. And so she was friendly. And allegedly, when I was about one or two years old, she came to the house and took me in her arms. So it's you know, it's, a, it's a nice memory that I don't remember. But it's certainly right. nice to be able to tell people <laughs> that uh, this with at least a shred of credibility. Um, right. <laughs> but so you know, I, I knew some people. My, my father is one of his closest friends was Jeff Chandler, who at the time was a very well-known actor. Um he had two children, both uh, were girls. Boys and girls didn't get that friendly back then, so I really never got to know them well. Uh, I reached out to them when I was writing my book. Unfortunately, they're both dead, which is sad, because I would have enjoyed yeah. talking with them and 
getting their uh, their perspective on things. But uh, Jeff Chandler was a lovely guy. His wife Marge and my mother were very close. Um, and so, you know, and I remember hearing stories about the set, life on the set, watching the rushes, you know, reading the script, and there were scripts all over our house. So it was, uh, you know, it was a make believe world. And many times in L.A., and this is still the case in L.A., as you probably know, sometimes reality and fantasy blend, and it's a little hard to tell which is which. Yeah, that is so true. So let's get to this part I'm excited to hear about. Tell me about the book, Every Other Weekend. Um, I, you know, it, 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 I really wrote it in, uh, in earnest during the pandemic. Uh, up until then, you know, I, I would tinker around with creative writing. But I was too busy being a judge and before that being a lawyer to get serious about it. I'd tinker here and there. I'd write a personal essay. One, one or two of them would get published in literary magazines. But then when the pandemic hit, a number of people had urged me to write a memoir. They said, you have an interesting life. And I kept saying, no, I haven't. Everybody has my story. What's so, what's so unique about it? And after a while, I began to believe it. And I said, OK, we're shut down. I'm stuck at home. Um, you know, my wife and my dog are here, uh, but nobody else. I'm going to write the book. And so I took some of the essays I had already written and published, put them together, tried to find a through line and wrote about life with the two different fathers and what it was like uh, shuttlecocking between one household and another. Um, what it was like going to school in first in the San Fernando Valley and then starting in the sixth grade Beverly Hills, which as we know, is a rather unique place. As one political operative here said, Beverly Hills is a small town that takes itself very seriously. And for better or for worse, they always have. But I enjoyed the book. I enjoyed putting it together and trying to, you know, trying to see where it would go. And it went through different uh, phases. Um, the unsung hero of the book is my mother. Initially, I didn't put her in the book. But uh, the more I wrote, the more I realized she does have a role to play. Uh, she really was the person running interference between both fathers, my own father, who, you know, had his own problems. Uh, and then my stepfather, who was not fun loving, uh, you know, was not as uh, playful as my father was, but was a very solid businessman and also, by the way, a solid Republican. So I've got my father tooting Bobby Kennedy and before that John Kennedy and before that Adlai Stevenson. I've got my stepfather as a huge Nixon supporter. Uh, his insurance broker and Nixon's were the same guy, John Crabo, who became ambassador to Finland. Uh, Sam was offered a sub-cabinet post, but he turned it down because he wanted to be in business. He always wanted to work for himself, and he did. And he wanted the family to work in the business as well which didn't go over that well with me because business was never really my thing. But it was interesting to see his office, see how things went uh, and, and see his business machines that went clickety-clack in the night and spat out credit cards. That's what he was best known for was the credit cards. So in a nutshell, that's sort of what the book's all about with, as I said, Beverly Hills and the California Golden Age in the background. The Golden Age is... You know, basically what Kevin Starr labeled it when he wrote his very well-known histories of California, uh, starting in the 1800s and finishing uh, in the 1970s or 1980s. Uh, and the period that I'm writing about in, uh, 
he wrote a volume called Golden Dreams, California in an Age of Abundance. And it was. It was a time mm. when life was easy. Pamela, if you were white. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you were white. <laughs> yes, I can I can imagine. Yes, yeah. sir. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Watts was a you know, Watts was a universe away from us, I must tell you. And Beverly Hills wow. High School, where I went, uh, had one African-American employee and one African-American student out of uh, 1800. Wow. It was a different so that, world. Right. That was my next question. What led you to write about your father and stepfather? I felt like I couldn't do one without the other. I mean, I probably could have written a Valentine to my father. Uh, and the first few essays I wrote were about my father because he was easy to write about. He was a polymath. He knew a lot about a lot of things. And we talked about everything. Shakespeare, the supernatural, politics, foreign affairs, um, mm -hmm. what else? Baseball. You name it. He, you know, We could talk about it. Stan was more of a one-trick pony. You could talk with him about business. And he did have a passion for sailing. So we could talk about sailing, but I was never much of a sailor and I got seasick a lot. So, you know, it wasn't my favorite pastime, but Stan and his earlier wife and kids had spent a year and a half sailing around the Caribbean at a time when nobody did that. It was 1949. People weren't cruising in 1949. We were too close to World War II and people didn't have that kind of money to just chuck it all, get on a boat and go. But Stan did it. And so those were the two topics of conversation. And then periodically, politics, Richard Nixon, the Republicans. He was very, very uh, adamant and passionate about that. So I got it from both ends mm -hmm. politically. Yeah. So I like the title. Did you just like say, this is going to be the title? How did you really like come up with that title? Because it all came together. Well, good question. Um, the initial title, and I went through a lot of them. The initial <laughs> title was Father, Father. I didn't like it. It didn't feel right. And a number of my friends said, is this a book about religion? So I realized I could be misleading readers. Then I had a couple of other ones. There's a book called Father and Son. I thought about titling it that. Uh, by the way, you cannot copyright a title. So I could have titled this book uh, Of Mice and Men or Dr. Zhivago and nobody could do anything about it because a title is up for grabs. I, I alighted on every other weekend and then I Googled it to see if there were other books and there were. There are several other books with that title. But again, you can't copyright the title and most of those books were a fiction. So I decided on a subtitle, Coming of Age with Two Different Dads. So when you see the book, it will say, and I happen to have it right here. It says every okay. other weekend, coming of age okay. with dads. And <laughs> I, it felt good. It felt right. And the publisher agreed with me. Uh, you know, John Kohler really liked it as well. He said, let's go with that. Uh, what Kohler Books does is they pull their readership. They pull their other authors and they say, what titles do you like? And they also pull their readers about uh, the cover of the book because they designed the cover. And anyway, every other weekend ended up on top. And it was my favorite one. I was hoping that the polling would come out that way. And it did. That's how it came to be. Wow. What is your advice of how to navigate family relationships 
when dealing with opposing political views or even a desperate economic status? Uh, the the first one to me is easier. Um, if you're a little kid, you know, what really do you know? You right. can parrot what you've learned in school. Um, you can parrot what your neighbors tell you. Um, and you hope that your parents will either agree or if they disagree, will explain why. Um, you know, I started parroting uh, Richard Nixon to my father because, you know, for five days a week and then for every other weekend, I'm hearing nothing more than Republican uh, arguments. But my father, who could debate extremely well, told me the other side. And uh, as a result, when I was in high school, I was a member of the Young Democrats and I was all the way into college. But I really did not like Lyndon Johnson. I just really disliked the no. man. And as a result, uh, I decided I liked Richard Nixon, even though he has tons of faults. And I interned in his campaign in the 1968 race. And I wrote my senior thesis about it. Clearly, Watergate changed things around. And now you would not call me a member of the Republican Party for love or money. But uh, <laughs> you know, my feeling would be is how do you handle it? Listen, uh, as a kid, you can be the cork bobbing on the water uh, because you're not really going to have the facts to argue one way or another. So just kind of absorb. And ultimately, you're going to make your own decision. Your other question was about economics. That yeah. one's hard because Stan, my stepdad, was very successful. You know, his company did extremely well. Uh, they made the um, the machinery that embossed and imprinted all of the Bank America cards, which are now Visa. So okay. that was a big deal. Um, the company went public. Uh, it was sold. He got into another venture, got not sold. He made a lot of money. And so... Weekends with him, we're living in Beverly Hills. He built a 58-foot catamaran, which at the time was the largest on the West Coast. We were sailing on it. Um, you know, he'd buy my mother all sorts of presents, you know, mink coats. Back then you wore mink coats. Now you don't. Uh, oh. <laughs> but uh, you know, lots of uh, bespoke jewelry. It was, it, you know, I was... I was one of the people at Beverly High. I was far from the wealthiest. As they say in the trade, there's always a faster gun. And there were plenty of kids who had much more money than I did. But we all had enough to be comfortable. And they're really, among the boys at least, I don't really remember a lot of economic snobbery. But on the weekends with my father, it was a different story. Because divorce was shameful and he got the blame. And um, yes. his, he had been in, uh, overseas for a year making a TV series which was not doing well. He jumped in on the third season and it was a dying series and he couldn't revive it, couldn't save it. Unfortunately, he had turned down the lead in Wyatt Earp to take the series. Hugh O'Brien got the part after that. Should have taken Wyatt Earp, but he wanted to live in Sweden, be, in the, be the international man of mystery and make uh, the series. So he comes back. He's has a lot of trouble getting work. He never got another TV series, although he, they made about three or four pilots couple of which I still have, and they're good, but they just didn't make it to the screen. And sadly, money became a problem. Right. And so, you know, we, he, he wasn't living in a great mansion or anything like that. In fact, he was always living in either a rented house, uh, and each year, or year, every two years, he would slip down to a smaller rented house, ultimately ending up in an apartment. 
So mm. that's kind of sad. It's kind of hurtful, at least to me, to see this happening. And his second wife was really no help whatsoever. She was very focused on money. And she was always talking about how they don't have any money. And one time I was, we were talking about what to do over a weekend and I was throwing out suggestions and she said, well, they cost money. And I forget what I said. And then she yelled at me, don't you realize that we're poor? Uh, and I think that was hyperbole. Really? They weren't poor, but they were, you know, financially challenged, if you will. Um, so I've got one weekend where I'm hearing about money being tight and my father really not having a lot of money. The other weekend, I'm hearing my mother say, well, go down to Carol and company and buy yourself another suit, or buy a few more shirts. And I say, I don't need them. And she goes, you need better shirts. Quote, I don't want you to poor boy it. End quote. Wow. So I've got both of these, you know, these attitudes coming at me from different directions. And yes, that was my next question. How did your relationship with your mother impact your relationship with your father and stepfather? Because here you are, you're just like, you know, as as kids, we don't want to we don't want to make anyone mad when our parents go through a divorce and when they, you know, have other uh, families as well. Now we just in this situation where we're trying to make everybody happy. How was that relationship? Well, as I said, my, as I wrote and uh, said to you, in every other weekend, my mother is the unsung hero of the book. You know, even though I'm writing about my two fathers, I could have written the book. Uh, you know, my mother, the uh, uh, my mother, the protector, something like that. Because, <laughs> you know, with my father, she, uh, you know, she she ran interference, and with Stan, she really ran interference because Stan had different uh, views about child rearing. Uh, quote, unquote, children shouldn't have that much fun, end quote. And I like to have fun. And my friends, yeah. you know, in grammar school and high school like to have fun. And my mother agreed. And so she would basically stop Stan sometimes if he wanted me to spend the whole weekend working at his, at his plant. My mother very often would stop that. Or if I wanted to go on a debate tournament and Stan wanted me to work that day, I would go to the debate tournament, thanks to my mother. You know, she would... She would be the one to say, no, this kid likes school. He's doing very well at school. You know, he's going to engage in school activities. He's not going to go down and work at your plant, uh, you know, at the Ozolid machine or at the or sorting envelopes or something like that. You know, some brainless task that <laughs> a little kid can do. So she was she was a rescuer. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of politics, so you know, I was a Democrat for many years, and especially when I went to become someone in leadership to help make a, you know, a difference. Now I am an independent. But what was so strange to me was I had to re-register because I went from a Democrat to an independent I'm so anxious right now to vote because we need change in our leadership, just totally from the top all the way to the bottom. Have you voted? <laughs> we have mail-in ballots in California. so. Oh, yes, I did. Okay, this is the interesting part. So I come to find that here I voted and everything, and then I get this um, letter in the mail. So when you... Vote as an independent, you cannot vote for president. 
Can I vote for president? That's what I was told. Wow, my ballot had a presidential choice on it. Well, mine didn't. Interesting. Interesting. Very interesting, right? Yeah. I let me preface what I'm going to say with one thing because I still sit on the bench part-time. I'm subject to the uh code of judicial ethics, which means I can't sit here and publicly express political beliefs. I have to be very careful okay. about that. Um okay. but I can say that I did re-register out of the Republican Party. And You um, did? Yeah, I did not okay. register as a Democrat. So right. I registered out of the Republican Party for reasons that are obvious. And right. um, but my ballot had a choice for president. Hmm. Very interesting. So yeah. what I did was I called. And uh, they had explained to me that being independent, you can't vote for presidency. You can vote for everything else, but not presidency. So I either had to vote Democrat or Republican. I wonder if so, you would, uh, changed it to decline to state what you would have gotten as a ballot. I don't know, but it was very interesting. So I had to go back online. I had to re-register and I end up having to vote Republican. Okay. Because And because here I am, and that's the reason why I want to remain a independent because I believe in some of the things of Democrat and some of the things of Republican. Mm -hmm. But presidency right now in my heart totally needs a change because we do need someone that's going to concentrate on the United States, not everywhere else. And I just wanted to speak about that a little bit. So I feel that is important. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I have to, again, I have to be careful with what I say here. Uh, what I will say That's is, true. This, this is one of the most fraught election years that I've ever seen. I mean, other than, you know, <laughs> I've been around for every one of them, but the ones I've seen, and this is this may be the most fraught. Although I must tell you, starting I mean, starting around 1960, uh, every election I would experience, not necessarily vote in because I couldn't vote until 68, but you know, people would talk about how important and how crucial the election is and how meaningful it is and how, you know, Mm -hmm. this could really change the country. I heard that in 60, 64, 68, uh, not so much in 72 or not so much in 76, certainly 1980, I heard it. And then again in uh, 88, 92, for sure. And then uh, after that, every year, you know, and especially 2004, eight, everyone, everybody says, this is the election of the, of the millennium. This is the election that will turn the country one way or the other. Uh, but mm-hmm. I tend to think this one may be the, this could be the real deal. Yeah, this one it is. The real deal. It is. It is. It's so much involved. And, you know, I, I, everyone is just so disappointed of what's going on right now. We're, we're focused because we want change. You got humanity crying. We want something different. And yeah. so right now we got to fight for it. So I just wanted to talk about that. It's, okay. So getting back. Okay. Right <laughs> <laughs> Inside of 2020, what are some things about your father and stepfather that you understand now that you didn't understand as a teenager? Well, 
you know, knowing, knowing what, more about the divorce. Yes. Um, Pertaining I, to the divorce. I'm sorry. Right. I can, mm-hmm. under, you know, at the time I had no idea what was going on. I didn't understand it. But I had many talks with my mother about this after, you know, I became a teenager and all the way into adulthood until she died. And mm-hmm. I had a lot of talks with Stan. I had some, God knows how many talks with my father. So, you know, look, my father in many ways was kind of immature. He was almost a Peter Pan in many ways. Um, he was, you know, he, he wasn't the best parent when I was a, a, a baby or a child. Uh, he once okay. said, I don't know why anybody could love a baby. You're looking at this glob of hamburger, <laughs> you know. But as I got older, he got much closer and we had much more fun together. And he would consciously say, quote, unquote, you're my pal. You know, and he'd, oh, okay. he'd call, he'd go, hey, pal, how are you doing? And <laughs> was dad, you know, he was the, the playful guy. He was, you know, you know, the closest adults I can identify you know, who were like him were uh, top 40 radio DJs. <laughs> You know, the, you know, like Bill Balance or Bob Eubanks or Dave Hull on KRLA or these people or Don Steele, you know, these kind of quasi immature, you know, gadabouts on the radio uh, right. would try to relate to teenagers. And my father was, you know, very much a playful guy and mm-hmm. uh, a, a marriage tied him down. And the other thing, as I said, is he wanted to be the international man of mystery. So TV series he took over was shot in Stockholm and the woman he married was Swedish. You know, he meets the Swedish mm-hmm. woman and she knocks him off his feet. And there we go. So right. <laughs> you know, I understand a lot more as to why the divorce happened now than I did back then. I'm not saying I agree with him. Uh, at one point he wanted to move out from mine because that marriage was poisonous and they argued all the time. It really, it, it just degenerated. And, when he said he was going to move out, I applauded him. I thought, that's great. Get the hell out. But he didn't. Yeah. He moved out for a little <laughs> period of time and then moved back in. Uh, from Stan's side, I can understand his divorce. His uh, first wife was an alcoholic. I met her after that. And she was, she, was a, she was a very talented artist. But she was a piece of work. And I, I couldn't see the two of them together. I couldn't imagine the two of them together, knowing what I now know about them both. But I can imagine my mother with Stan very easily. And that was a storybook marriage. Wow. Yeah. Okay. What was the hardest chapter to write and the easiest chapter to write? Well, the easiest one was one called Radio in the Light. And that's the first chapter I wrote after Mom and Stan married. Because, you know, that that was, uh, they were married in December of 58. 1959 was the idyllic year. My mother couldn't have been happier. She had been really miserable and scared while she was a divorcee. And, you know, she was frightened. She was alone with a little kid. Uh, Finances were an issue. You know, she didn't have a lot of money back then. And my father wasn't doing that well. This was after the divorce. And so he wasn't sending a lot of support money. And she was trying to make do. We were okay. We weren't, quote, poor. But she really kind of had to watch her nickels. And now suddenly along comes Stan. She was as happy as as she could be. I had my older stepbrother, Skip. I always had wanted a sibling. I didn't want to be an only child. So in comes Skip, five years older. And Skip is California's, you know, the quintessential California teenager. He looked the part. uh, There were times he looked like uh, James Dean. Um, 
he sailed. <laughs> he used to race boats and he would always win. He had a 1946 you know, Ford with an Oldsmobile engine in it and he drag raced all over town. He had a girlfriend whose brother was a movie star, Troy Donahue, and Troy's okay. sister was Skip's girlfriend, Eve, who was a lovely uh, girl. And she and I actually got along extremely well. She was very supportive of me. Really, we had some lovely talks. And, you know, as I said, my mother is overjoyed, stands as happy as a clam. And, you know, I, and that's the chapter I really had fun writing. It just flowed out. The hardest right. chapter to write was the one called A Bowl of Jello. Stan, you know, had his faults. And one of them was he was a disciplinarian and mm-hmm. he didn't hesitate uh, from spanking. And this was a situation where out of the blue, he claimed I had uh, failed to clean up the kitchen out of the blue. And the next thing I know, he was hitting me. And I got mad and I hit back. And this turned into a, a genuine fight. And to this day, it's very hard to understand what drove him. It was sort of like, you know, zero to, you know, zero to bully in 60 seconds or less. And that chapter was very hard. I wrote it several times. I'm still not sure I got it right. But uh, that was the first <laughs> chapter to write. Right. That was the saddest. I mean, that one was that one I really had to, you know, kind of keep a Kleenex box on hand as I wrote along. Yeah. So here you are, you you wrote your books. Did any family members or friends read the book before you uh before publication? They read the published the- essays. You know, a number okay. of the essays. I'd say about uh, I'd venture to say forty or fifty percent of the book is has been published in small literary journals. And every time an essay came out, I'd send it to the family. I don't know if they read it or not, but I'd send it along. And sometimes I, my, my, uh, my, my stepbrother's wife would always read them. She would always call me or write and you know, comment on them. Um, one of my nieces read them all and would comment on them. Uh, I'm not sure who else read them. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister read them. My stepsister read them as well, or uh, many of them. Um, So after the book came out, everybody read it. And I got comments from everybody. Fortunately, they were positive comments. People really liked it. Nobody said, oh, you were wrong about this or how dare you write that sort of a thing. You know, I always was afraid that somebody was going to say, you know, how, you know, you're wrong or I'm offended the way you wrote this about me or about Stan Mm -hmm. or your father. That didn't happen. From my other side, from, from my father's side, his wife, uh, second wife, died before the book came out. And she had two children um, who really didn't know me that well because they were much younger. One was six years younger, the other four. So when my father met her in Sweden, you know, if, if I'm, what, uh, seven years old, one of them's one and one of them is, what, three? So I right. barely, you know, we, we barely connected. But we connected a little more once I you know, got into uh, college, if you will. I'm now in touch with them, and I really haven't spoken to them about the book. I don't know what they think about it. Uh, that's the harder, that's the harder issue because they're not seeing uh, their mother coming off in the best. Again, oh, you know, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Now. Yes. Um, okay. There was an echo there for a minute. Um, you know, I didn't savage her mother, their mother. You know, I, I wasn't, you know, nasty, but I was candid, you know, candid about my feelings. When I met her, you know, there was some instinct 
you know, call it a child's instinct. I wasn't that uh, happy with her around the house when we were in Sweden. I just was. I didn't know why. I just wasn't that pleased that she was around. Um, right. And when we left Sweden, I kept thinking, good, I'm never going to see her again. And then when she popped back into Los Angeles, I was not happy at all. <laughs> and I well, did, you see, you couldn't get rid of her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then when, you know, when, when she married my father, which again came as a surprise, I had no idea it was coming. Um, you know, and I wrote about all the problems of their marriage, uh, including a long running affair that my father had. Um, I'm sure that hurt the two of them. I'm sure it did, but we really haven't discussed it. Right. But from Leslie and Skip's point of view and from my cousin's point of view and my niece's point of view, they love the book. They were very happy I wrote it. So do you think when you're writing a book, you should have people to read it before you, before it goes into publication? Or it really doesn't matter because, you know, people tend to have you're going to have a naysayer and you're going to have some positiveness out of it. What is your feeling behind that? Well, it's up to the author. You know, there's really no one correct answer about this. I think you should have beta readers. However, Uh, I think you're making a mistake if you write something and say, boy, this is really ready to go and then send it out Mm -hmm. without having at least one person look at it. I had Mm -hmm. several look at the book before it went, you know, I I did have a real editor look at it, uh, you know, a professional editor. Uh, I had a, fellow from a writing workshop take a look at a lot of the book um and give and both of them gave me a lot of you know criticism a lot of suggestions along the way and then the publisher put an editor on it uh the good news there is she didn't think there was much to edit she said i think this thing is almost ready to go and i said well i'm not sure and we went through it page by page she might make one nit i would make five or six (laughs) she'd say, okay, this one word might, we might change. I say, okay, but what about these other 20 words on the page? I don't like them anymore. I can do better (laughs) and rewrite it. And that's how we went. But we went through the whole book that way. Yeah, I I do agree with you. You also wrote the Firebird book and you received an award in 2023. Well, that's, I didn't write it. I got an award, yeah. Yeah, you got an award. Okay, so tell me about that because this book was a winner about divorce and apparently you had found this to be absolutely intriguing. Tell me about that book and why. Well, that's the same book. I mean, the Firebird. That's the same book? They they awarded the first place to every other weekend. It's the Firebird Award. Uh, They were very nice. Oh, okay. Um, It's won other awards too. It it won uh, in memoir for the American Writing Awards. Uh, It's got honorable mentions in several other places. It got second place in the Royal Dragonfly Award. Uh, oh, okay. Third place in the Book Fest Awards. I mean, there are several of these. Uh, there are others I didn't win at all, but uh, you know, there are about eight or nine <laughs> where there are about eight or nine where you know I got at least honorable mention or finalist or you know, ranked third, second, or a winner. So wow, congratulations! Yeah, yeah. How many books have you written so far? Well, this is the only. Uh, creative book I've written, but uh, okay. by the by the way, when we talk about these awards, they do give you a they give you seals. See, this is the Royal Dragonfly. Absolutely, <laughs> but I should put a Firebird one on there as well. But okay. in any case, um, uh, you know, other books. Uh, another judge and I wrote two legal textbooks, and. Um, Thomson Reuters, which is a big publisher, put those out. And they're 
uh, we update them every year. We uh, since 2010. One's on civil okay. trials and one's on personal injury litigation. So you you know we can call them books, but they're textbooks. You know you're not going to want to sit down and tuck in one night and Absolutely. Read them, go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is so true. Yeah, absolutely. So you plan on writing any more books or? I, you know, yeah, I'd like to. Um, I'm torn mm-hmm. between two topics. Let me ask you what you think. Um, okay. One would be writing about the California of the same time, the early 60s, late 50s. But I turn the lens out to the community. It wouldn't be about the family. It would be just about what it's like to grow up here and what people were doing and where we went and how we played or whatever that would be you know and, and what the uh what the attitudes were like the other one would be what's it like to be a judge that one many judges oh. have written books like that many are boring because they say i tried a car accident case i tried a trip and fall i tried a drunk driving case you know golly willikers and this can bore a reader um judging is fun i love it but you know to the outside reader it's not like being a, a CIA operative. You're not. You're sitting there going, "I listened to this. I opened the book. I researched the law. I wrote a brief. I wrote an opinion." That can be really dull. So if I write it, it's more kind of like, "What goes through your mind? How do you, you know, make these decisions?" So I'm not sure, but those are the two I'm toying with. Any thoughts, one way or the other? Well, I do like what it's like to be a judge. You know why? Because a judge role is so important to society. And a lot of times it's always good to communicate what's going on with you or that person that is a judge. Mm -hmm. So we can have a better understanding when we are in trouble, we have to stand in front of him instead of uh, being judgmental, you know, because everyone thinks that a judge is supposed to, have a lot of understanding and compromising, not realizing or understanding that, you know, a judge position is to make the right decision on the best of the information that's received. Right. So well, I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> okay. Well, that's your good. You, you, uh, my wife agrees with you. Okay. Yes. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> Hard we to are. say. I've, 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 I've put the question to several uh, groups, uh, audiences in bookstores where I've done readings. And okay. it comes out dead even. The last oh, one I, I did was every uh, almost everybody wanted me to write the one about L.A. back in the day. But when okay. you tally up all the votes, it's coming out even. So I'm just sort of like, I'll write a chapter in one, I'll write a chapter in the other. Uh, and the I'm other. just going back and forth. And I'm going to just kind of, I don't know, eventually get out my Ouija board and make the call. That's right. That's right. Okay. Did you ever consider a career in entertainment like your father or becoming an entrepreneur like your stepfather? Oh, when I was about four, four years old, my neighbor and I played office. (laughs) So if you want to say I considered it, uh, I did. But very quickly, I decided business was not for me. So I was never serious about it. Um, Although, when I practiced law, I was uh, for a long time a solo practitioner, and that's running a business. You know, it's a profession, but there is the business of law. Uh, you know, right together the office, billing the clients, trying to collect from the clients, etc. Um, 
did I want to be in entertainment like my father? I couldn't act. Um, when he was doing his series, I asked to be in it. I was seven at the time. They had me walk through a scene. Um, I was, I wrote about this in the book and, um, that was easy because I was in the background drinking out of a drinking fountain. So then they <laughs> gave me lines and they put me in, uh, gave me an actual role. Um, and I did not like it. I was bored. We had God knows how many takes. And I found it to be kind of a, you know, a, a drag, if you will. And I remember walking off that set saying, I don't want to be an actor anymore. I did try out and wow. see plays, but again, I wasn't much of an actor. Um, so now I love improv. You know, I'm very good with improv and I actually, and I always enjoyed impromptu speaking as an event in high school and did very well with it. Um, and for about a year, I was part of an improv theater company before I became a judge. I had to quit when I got on the bench because improv theater and being a judge don't mix very well. It just doesn't because yeah. in improv, you have to accept every suggestion. And the cast, of course, was giving me suggestions of crooked judges taking bribes. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> that's an ethical violation to start playing the role judge taking bribe. So I just quit the theater and said, "Thank you. It's been it's been real, but I've got to move on now." So, <laughs> but I was ne- I was never serious about it. Uh, I did want to be a Musketeer, but okay. you know, I really did because you know, I wanted to get to know Annette and all of that. But everybody said, "Well, if you're going to be a Musketeer, you have to be able to sing and dance." And I was always too Ooh. embarrassed to do either. I, I'm very clumsy as a dancer, and I have a singing voice that would make animals run. So <laughs> there you are. <laughs> okay. My last question is, how did you create space for becoming a writer while working as a judge? Um, I never wrote in chambers. Um, I always thought because you have a lot of downtime as a judge, you know, between trials, uh, there's a break. Sometimes the jury wants to go home early. Somebody gets sick and you're just in chambers with not a lot to do. And I always thought, okay, I'll use that time to write, but I never did. You know, I used my time to do judging things and I just didn't feel it was right to sit there and, you know, engage in creative writing in chambers. So that left five o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock at night or weekends. And that's what I would do. I might just, you know, if I'm tired, maybe I'd sit down and write one paragraph and go to bed or get up in the morning. And before taking a shower, throw on the computer, write two paragraphs, that would be it. And then maybe Sunday morning, spend three hours writing. That's how I was able to do it. Wow. Well, you know, when I wrote my first book, A Journey of a Sapphire, and it's all about the adversity that I had gone through, But what was very interesting was when I just started writing the book, I I had so much writer's block because here I am trying to put everything down that I was going through. And then to me, it didn't make any sense. So I had to rewrite it over again. But I had learned to go into my quiet place. So I started off in my little powder room in my closet and I just sat there and I wrote and I wrote and then I left it alone and I left my little booklet and everything right there and I left and I just continued my day but I would go back the next day and I'll do the same and I come to find out that practice was good for me and then I was able to just come out of my little powder room (laughs) my little quiet powder room 
Yeah, and I it did worked that. for you. It's a book I'd love to read at some point. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, Mr. Moore, I know we're headed for time and everything. It has been a pleasure having you on my show. Do you have any last minute comments you would like to say? Other than everybody go out and buy my book. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, tell us where to buy your book and how oh, you can, to purchase your book. Um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Thrift Books, any of these online sellers have it. There are some bookstores in L.A. that carry it. Um, if you just want to borrow it and read it, uh, the Beverly Hills Library has it. I forget where else, but it's available. The best thing to do is just get it on Amazon. You can get softcover or Kindle or hardcover. I wouldn't recommend hardcover. I just prefer soft. It looks a lot better. Um, but it's certainly available. And um, you know, other than that, final comments. Uh, Pamela, I want to thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm really happy we had this chance. Absolutely. So when I go to look for your book, I'm going to go to Amazon and I'm going to search Anthony Moore one weekend at a time or every, uh, every other weekend. Plug every in my other name, weekend. Anthony Moore, Thank every you. other weekend. It should pop right up. Okay, good, good. Okay. Thank you for that. Well, readers, I have reached my destination. As always, I leave you with this quote. Weekends don't account unless you spend them doing something completely pointless. <laughs> Bill Watterson. Have a beautiful day. Thank nice. you so much. Until next time, please join me again. Thank Cheers. you again. Thank you for listening to All Roads 65 Max Radio with Pamela Henderson. Join us every other week on Tuesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on BBS Radio Station One. And please visit allroads65max.org and become a volunteer or sponsor and be the change you want to see in this world. With your help, we can make a difference in our society and uplift those who so desperately need our help. Thank you for tuning in.